This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Vermont, a state that is open for the very best in winter adventures. With dozens of iconic ski mountains, thousands of miles of exceptional cross-country ski trails, fat biking, snowshoeing, plus cozy inns and farm-to-table dinners, there's no better place to take the vacation you deserve. But when you're traveling to Vermont these days, you need to take some extra steps. It's really, really important this season to know before you go. This is Adam White. He's the director of communications for Ski Vermont. This is a dream job for me. Adam can talk for hours about the unique experiences to be had in the Green Mountains. A lot of facets of skiing were really invented here. The ski patrol was invented here. But this year, Adam is also asking travelers to go to vermontvacation.com to learn about the rules that are in place to stop the spread of COVID-19. These include a requirement to quarantine for 14 days, or seven days and a negative COVID test. If you're driving to Vermont, you can do this at home before your trip. If you're arriving by air or public transportation, you'll need to quarantine in Vermont. Many mountains also have reservation systems in place for skiing, parking, and other services. And every mountain has come up with creative ways to make your stay more fun, like cozy new day-use cabins in the base area. They're heated, they have tables and chairs inside, and you can get food delivered to them from the restaurants at the ski area, or you can bring your own food. You're seeing a lot of things like waffle shacks and really cool food trucks in the parking lots, and you're seeing to-go windows are being installed all over the place. But best of all, the skiing and riding is the same as it ever was. Once you got snow beneath your skis or your snowboard, it's going to be the same experience that you know and love. Nothing about that has changed. Learn more about how to plan the getaway you need this winter at vermontvacation.com. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. I'm genuinely afraid every first day of the season in Yosemite. I can't wrap my head around the exposure of 3,000 feet under my feet until I'm actually doing it. So every time I go back, it's like really new and it's really intimidating and it's really scary. And like every season, I, I essentially have that feeling of terror. Serious athletes are used to digging deep. But there's pushing yourself. And then there's what Emily Harrington did on November 4th of this year. That's when she became the first woman and the fourth person ever to free climb the Golden Gate route up Yosemite's El Capitan in a single day. It was one of those moments in the sport that captured the world's attention. Climber Emily Harrington has reached the peak of success, scaling Yosemite's treacherous El Capitan. Free climbing the Golden Gate is an insanely challenging way to ascend El Cap. 3,200 feet of climbing, straight up, using only your hands and feet. And Emily had failed more than once before in her attempt to climb the whole thing in a single day. In 2019, she took a 50-foot fall on the route that sent her to the hospital, strapped to a backboard. During this year's climb, she was just a few hundred feet from the top when she took another bad fall smashing her head into the granite. With a hole in her forehead and blood pouring down her face, she had to decide whether she could finish the climb, especially since the last few pitches are the hardest part. Outside contributor Stephanie Joyce caught up with Emily 
while she was in southern Utah this month, helping support her fiancé, the Mount Everest guide Adrian Ballinger, as he attempted to climb his hardest ever sport route. You'll hear him in the background, packing up for their long drive home to Lake Tahoe, while Emily talks to Stephanie about why she's still terrified at the beginning of every Yosemite season, and how believing that she had failed again on the Golden Gate route this time is what actually allowed her to get to the top. Emily was 12 the first time she saw El Cab. She was already a serious climber at that point, but she didn't look at the rock face and think, I'm going to climb that someday. I grew up in Colorado, but I, when I first started climbing, I was a competition climber. So I just grew up climbing in the gym and doing competitions. And that was sort of my understanding of what climbing was. And I went to a my first like competition that I got actually traveled for was in San Francisco. I just remember my dad was like, oh, well, we're close to Yosemite. We have to go to Yosemite. Like, we have to just at least see it. After the day after the comp, we got up really early and it was me and my dad and my climbing coach at the time. And we drove to Yosemite. And uh, I remember seeing El Cap for the first time then. It was just so big. It was so overwhelming. It was so impossible to think about climbing it. Like that was not in my head at all. My aspirations were solely rooted in like competitions. And Emily did really well in competition. She was the national sport climbing champion five times as a teen. But in her early 20s, she burnt out. She was studying international law in college and she thought about giving up on climbing entirely. Then she got a call from the North Face. They offered her a spot on their team of sponsored athletes alongside famous mountaineers and big wall climbers. And Emily realized maybe it was time to look outside the gym. She started trad climbing, which involves the climber placing all of their own gear to stop a fall. And she started attempting big wall projects that would eventually prepare her for LCAP. I basically had to become a beginner again in this sport that I thought I was elite at. Like, I thought I knew what it was all about. And then when I started trad climbing and when I started big wall climbing, like, I was absolutely terrified. And, and so that process for me was actually years and years and years. Emily was 27 the first time she actually tried climbing El Cap. She was living in San Francisco at the time with her childhood best friend, the climber Beth Rodden. Beth was pregnant and not climbing, but Emily and Beth's husband, Randy Perrow, decided to try the first part of one of the easier routes on El Cap. It took us like eight hours. Neither of us knew what we were doing. We were both terrified. Beth was at the bottom, like super pregnant, texting us, like kind of like telling us where to go. I just remember like being really overwhelmed, um, but at the same time, like pretty inspired by the whole thing and like inspired by by Beth and like her sort of like confidence in us. Climbing on El Cap is like so different than climbing everywhere else. It's incredibly slippery and we knew what we were doing enough to be safe, but at the same time, we definitely felt out of our element. So that was that was your first time climbing El Cap and you decided to come back after that. Yep, I came back a year later. The next year, I decided I wanted to try to free climb El Cap, a route on El Cap. That was in 2015. That was the year of the like really bad earthquake in Nepal. And Adrian was on Everest at the time, but ended up coming home early because of the earthquake. 
And when he got home, he was like pretty bummed and like kind of needed a, an adventure. And he offered to like try to support me on LCAP. And so we went up there, went up the Golden Gate and he belayed me. We took six days and I ended up free climbing it barely, just absolutely barely by the skin of my teeth. So it's clear free climbing and free soloing are two very different things. Free soloing is what Alex Honnold, who's one of Emily's climbing partners, made famous. The practice of climbing without ropes for protection. Emily free climbs, which means she ascends the wall using only her hands and feet. But she uses ropes for safety in case of a fall. People who don't climb don't really understand the difference between free climbing and free soloing. (laughs) They are very different. (laughs) They're very, very different. Um, It's really hard I think as a climbing community, we need to like change the term. Yeah. <laughs> essentially, I, the movie Free Solo just ruined everything for all of us. <laughs> Everyone thinks you're up there without ropes hanging off the side Everyone. of a cliff. <laughs> Everyone thinks you're up there without ropes. And it's, um, it's very hard and very confusing for people. After that six-day climb in 2015... Emily started to think about attempting a single-day free climb of El Cap. But at the time, she was eyeing a route called Free Rider, which is a lot easier than Golden Gate. It's also a shorter route. And most people who free climb El Cap in a day, um, there's about maybe 20 or 25 people ever throughout history who've done it. Um, the majority of them have done the Free Rider. So that just seemed like a natural thing for me to try. Um, and then the next year, Alex free soloed it. <laughs> and I I started thinking more about like how I wanted to progress in my climbing. And I wanted, I wanted this really tangible example of progression. And I knew that the Golden Gate would be a significant step up from the free rider in a day. Um, because the climbing is, is so much, the, the climbing is just harder. It kind of, in my head, didn't necessarily know if I could do it. Like, I didn't think that it was totally possible for me. I didn't really have the skills or the fitness or the strength. And I knew that, but I knew that I would become so much better by trying. And so that's why I chose the Golden Gate. You obviously, you can afford to climb full-time because you're a sponsored athlete. Like when you're thinking about setting a goal like this for yourself, when you're deciding on like what is your project, do you think about how it's going to be marketed? Do you think about like, oh, like, okay, Alex, like free soloed that route. Like it's not going to be as impressive. I mean, that was definitely something that thought that I thought of in my head. Like I sort of was like, oh man, like now Alex free soloed it. Like (laughs) it's not as impressive for sure. Um, But it wasn't like, I don't think it, it was less of a marketing thing. It would still be an incredible achievement for me. Um, I I think I was just less inspired by the idea of it at the time. Um, and in the end, I was still really drawn to the Golden Gate. I was still really drawn to the idea of it. And I felt like I had just barely sent that route. I wanted to do it in like a better style, if that makes sense. Like, I wanted to show myself that I could climb it better than I had. That you mean you had just barely sent it in 2015 when you when you did it over the course of six days. Yeah, exactly. 
There are maybe 15 or 20 routes that can be free climbed up El Cap. Emily considers Golden Gate as in the middle, difficulty-wise. But in the middle on El Cap is really, really hard by basically any other standard. In climbing, routes are rated on an open-ended scale that gets very technical. But the simple way to understand it is that the easiest climbs start at 5-1, and the most difficult route ever climbed is a 5-15. Golden Gate has 41 pitches, and five of them are rated 5-13. And all of them presented their own challenge to me. There's a down climb pitch that's 5-13. That's like, that's like a really unique uh, form of climbing that you'd only really do on El Cap. It was a slab. It was incredibly like... Uh, just like hard if you're short, um, hard for me to reach the holds. I don't even, I couldn't even remember how I did it in 2015 actually. So I'd go up there and I'd just like stare at the holds and be like, this is impossible. But I knew it wasn't impossible because I'd done it. Um, and then there's a pitch called the move pitch. That's the hardest pitch on the wall um, that I spent two days trying to do in 2015. And um, and then there's two 513 pitches right one after the other at the very, very end. Um, and the, the second one is called the A5 Traverse. It's purely like a, a sport climb. Like it's purely like something that I would be able to do super well and super easily. Like if it just started, you know, from the ground. But after so much climbing, it's the fatigue is so deep that it's it, it proves to be a really difficult pitch. And a lot of people who tried to free climb the Golden Gate just over the many days and in a day, many of them failed at that pitch. And then in addition, just like the easier climbing is not easy. Um, It's all physical. It all takes a certain level of efficiency that like, if you're not efficient on the easier climbing, then you won't be able to do the harder climbing. And so this attempt this year to free Golden Gate in a day was not your first try. Tell me about your first attempt in 2019. This year was my fourth attempt. So I tried in the spring of 2019 and failed. Then I came back in the fall of 2019. I tried. I had a great attempt the first try of the fall. I actually failed on the A5 Traverse. That's the last one. The last one. Like right before the end. Yeah. It was a heartbreaking failure. Like I just was so crushed. Um, um, But I had one more attempt in me for that season. So I tried again. Uh, end of November last year and um, it was really cold and I had a very unfortunate slip on the very first pitch of the route. Alex Honnold and I were trying to simul climb so I was we were trying to move really fast over the first 1200 feet and I uh, was placing very little gear so very little protection in an attempt to like move faster and I slipped and fell and I fell like 40 or 50 feet I still don't really know. I hit a ledge and Full, very serious, like full concussion, lost consciousness, like pretty intense, like fear of spinal injury, had to get rescued, wound up in the hospital. It was very, very scary and traumatic, I think, for everyone involved. But I ended up walking out of the hospital that night after many tests and I got lucky, essentially. No, no, no spinal injury, just a few like big cuts and bruises and rope burn around my neck where the rope like kind of caught me oddly enough um 
and that was the end of my season in 2019 was that I ended up in the hospital in Fresno. (laughs) Was that the biggest fall that you had taken in your career? Oh, yeah, by a long shot. I've never experienced an accident like that before, ever. Um, I think the form of climbing that I practice 99% of the time is very safe and pretty low risk. And for this this challenge, I was um, taking a significant, significantly higher risk by having to move faster and by having to do something called simul climbing, which is essentially when you move up the wall simultaneously with your partner. It's sort of like a, imagine like a caterpillar, like sneaking its way up the wall, each of you on one end of the rope. Um, and so, you know, for this challenge, I realized that I did need to be quite a bit faster and I needed to take more risk. And so that was, yeah, that was my biggest, biggest accident for sure. But at the same time, I knew how to prevent it. You know, like I knew what I had done wrong. I just had taken it too far. I'd been too comfortable on terrain that was a little bit uh, too difficult. And so, I, you know, I, I approached it very rationally. It was like, okay, well, next time I'm going to place more gear and I'm going to move a little bit slower. It sounds like the accident was pretty traumatic, even though you walked away from it. Was there like a lingering hesitation from that in any way? I spent the fall training, I spent the fall preparing and climbing on the pitches and kind of mentally wrapping my mind around, around it all again. Like I went back to the pitch I fell on, I climbed it really slowly, I look, really looked at it, I placed a lot of gear, I did it super safely. Um, and I sort of like let myself take the baby steps to like dip, dip go into the, dip myself into the, the shallow end of the pool before I dove into the deep end again. I knew that that was it was going to take that, and I was okay with it. I was okay with like taking those baby steps and trying to be a little bit kinder to myself about it. Like I was, I've been so 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 terrified up there. I've had moments where I was just like, I want to stop doing this. Like, why am I doing this? This is horrible. This is awful. What am I doing? I'm so scared. And then I've had moments where I'm just like trying as hard as I possibly can, super run out, 2,000 feet off the ground, not even worried about it at all. And that, the difference in headspace is so dramatic. Um, And I just, I've proven it to myself. And I think that other people would be surprised at what they're capable of um, mentally in terms of like adjusting to fear. We'll be back after the break. At the top of the episode, we heard from Adam White at Ski Vermont about how you can responsibly visit this winter. For passionate skiers and snowboarders, the mountains of Vermont offer the kinds of outdoor adventures that make for memorable experiences. I think we need this more than ever. And the spirit of that really struck me on the chairlift of, I'm back. I'm back at this place that I love, doing this thing that I love. I dropped in and started to carve down the mountain, and it literally was like... The pandemic just disappeared. Once I was out there and skiing and making those turns, it was the medicine for my soul that I really desperately needed. Traveling to Vermont this winter does require extra planning. In addition to the quarantines we mentioned earlier, ski lifts and lodges have limited capacity, and you might need to make reservations for skiing, parking, and other services. But doing that isn't all that different than planning your typical ski trip. And it's easy to find the latest information on travel restrictions at vermontvacation.com. What I've been saying all along is, 
we're all in this together this year. And skiing inherently is a community, especially in Vermont. And that bond is going to help us because the reality is we all have a shared responsibility when it comes to the safeguards and the procedures that have been put in place in relation to the COVID pandemic. And we all have to play our part. And the reward is that you get to come out and enjoy these mountains. Learn more about how to plan the winter adventure getaway you deserve at vermontvacation.com. Emily was already a quarter of the way up El Cap by the time most Americans started their post-election doom scrolling on November 4th. I started climbing at 1.30 in the morning um, because I wanted to reach the down climb, that pitch that I was, the, the really uncertain one. I wanted to reach it before, I wanted to reach it in the daylight so I could see the holds, but before the sun hit it. Because when the sun hits the rock, it gets really hot and really slippery. So that's why I started at 1.30 in the morning so that I could get there around 7 a.m. And I noticed that you didn't actually post about your plan on social media before the climb. Was that a choice that you made? Yeah, I just, I actually deleted my Instagram account. Like, I didn't delete my account. I deleted the app off my phone and all my social media the week before. I just felt like it wasn't helping me at all. Um, And I just wanted to check out for a little while. So I I sort of just, like, gave myself that, that time to focus inward. So... You get started at 1.30 in the morning, climbing, I assume, by headlamp. Um, and you make it by sunrise, 7 a.m., to this really difficult section that has caused you problems before. How does the rest of the morning go? Yeah, so I um, I actually surprised myself. I, like, fell on it once, that pitch, and then I did it second try. And I was really happy about that. That's the first time that ever happened. So I had really good momentum. I felt really good that day. I felt really strong. Um, and then I got up to this pitch, the Golden Desert, which is, like, the 513 before the A5. And it's a pitch that actually I didn't – I think I underestimated it. I uh, had never fallen on it. Um, but I was – it was really hot at that point of the time in the day, and I – decided to try it like try to get out of the way in the sun um, so that I could focus on the A5 which is where I'd failed the year before and I tried it once and my foot slipped in the sun it was so hot and I fell and I ripped a piece of gear but I was fine Uh, and I was like oh well that's a bummer but I'll just do it in the next you know rest 30 minutes and do it again so I went up there again um, same thing super hot slipped again fell this time I um, came off the wall really weird and I like swung into the wall and I hit my head. Immediately saw a bunch of blood, um, head wounds um, bleed a lot. And uh, thought I had a concussion, was like flashbacking to the year before, was super bummed, kind of was like, oh no, is this the end? I just felt like everything had come crumbling down. Like I, you know, I was like, oh, I'm gonna fail again. You have blood, like, pouring down your face. And how long before you decide, I'm going to do this again? Probably, like, a couple hours I spent. Kind of needed to, like, assess my potential for head injury and uh, wait for the sun to go away. At that point, I was like, okay, it's too hot. Like, we need to wait for the sun to go. Um, I'd say it was a couple hours. Wow. Okay. So, like... 
At that point, you're probably, I don't know what, like 2,800 feet off the ground, maybe more? Yeah. In that moment, what is your internal dialogue? What are you wrestling with during the hours that you're sitting there waiting to decide whether you're going to try this again? I mean, I wanted to be done, honestly. Like, I'd given up. I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, this sucks. I'm over it. But at the same time, Adrian was kind of like, you can do this. You have to try one more time. Like, you know, at that point, it's kind of like, what else are you going to do, right? Like, you could either Jumar out and be done, or you could give it one more try. In my head, I was like, okay, I'll try one more time. Um, But I had no expectations. You know, it was like, I'll try one more time. I'll probably fall, and then I'll be done. And And then I can go home. And I can be happy that I, I gave it one more try. And for me to climb well, a lot of, sometimes I need to let go of all the expectations and almost give up in a way. And it almost is a, like a, te- a little bit of negativity I have to adopt. Like, all right, well, it's over. There's nothing left to do. But like, try to do the moves one more time. You know, there's like nothing to lose. In that moment, were you thinking at all about like, oh, like, if I fail, I have to do it again? Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> And that was not appealing at the time. But again, I know that like once you give something time and space, like I would have been ready to go back and try again. Like I wouldn't have stopped there. Uh Uh-huh. After you fell, you still had a lot of very hard climbing to do. I had one more hard pitch, which was the A5. And then I had a lot of moderate but dangerous climbing, like really run out, um, intimidating, really hard if you're tired or as tired as I was. Um, it definitely was not over until I reached the top. And then you reached the top, and what did you feel the moment that you realized, like, oh my God, I've done it? It was almost, it was just perfect. It was like this really quiet night, um, and it was just a few of us on top. Like, the stars were out. You know, like, in a lot of sports, when you achieve something big, it's like you have, like, the live stream or the audience or whatever. Um, there was none of that. Uh, and it was just kind of like, we had a little bottle of champagne, I called my parents. Um, it was like, you know, it was the middle of the night. We didn't get down until 2.30 in the morning. So it was one of those things where you're just like exhaustedly delirious and happy. And I mean, that's a full, that's like a, that's a full 24 hours of physical. Yeah, I was awake for like 27 hours or something like that. Wow. <laughs> Were you hallucinating at that point? <laughs> no, I just, I have, you know, I've spent a lot of time, like I've had a lot of big days in the mountains and a lot of days where I've been away for really long periods of time. So I think I was like pretty well trained for that. Um, But it was definitely one of the more, like I've never performed like physically that well uh, being awake for that long. And in some ways, the climb was just the beginning. Emily had been expecting some media attention for the climb, but the story went viral. I did not anticipate it to go like that. Um, thinking about it afterwards, it kind of makes sense. You know, I think the world was primed for some good news. I think it was just more more timing than anything else. You know, that was a story that people found to be, like, inspiring, even though most people didn't really understand what I did. The Associated Press, which obviously is a service that distributes to papers across the world, like, got the story very wrong. Um They said that you were the first woman to climb El Cap in a day, which, of course, that honor goes to Lynn Hill, who was the first person to do it in a day. What did that mistake say to you? Like, what did it mean to you that they made that error? I was pretty bummed. I was, like, pretty, uh, 
kind of like ashamed and embarrassed, I guess, that that had happened. Um, because like, I've always known about her achievement. I've always like seen climbing as a space for women simply because of that achievement. You know, she's just a, such a hero. And so it was just like embarrassing more than anything. Um, but I, I, I actually reached out to Lynn and like apologized. And she was like, I don't care. <laughs> just like, that's just what the media does. <laughs> I mean, I guess, like, what does it say to you that that was, like, the mistake that they made, though? Like, it's so inconceivable that it could have been, like, a woman to be the first to do it, period. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, that's true. Actually, I didn't think about it like that. Um, I mean, it was so many times up on LCAP where I just felt like I didn't belong because I was one of the only women up there trying to do trying to do what I'm doing. And it's so ironic, isn't it? Because every climber knows about Lynn Hill's accomplishment. Like everyone knows how groundbreaking that was. And yet still when you're up there, you like feel like you're in still like kind of like a man's world, um, you know? And and so I, I am, uh, I guess, influenced by that, you know? And all of my mentors up there were men. And, you know, I learned, I learned their ways and a lot of it didn't work for me. And this year I changed it, you know, and I finally came to a place where I felt like I belonged up there. I felt like I knew what I was doing. I felt like uh, competent. I felt confident and I felt like I could be a little bit creative and sort of like figure out my way. So you're you're 34, right? Yeah. Mm hmm. Where, where do you think you are right now in your climbing career? I mean, I'm stronger than I've ever been in my life, um, which is really cool. Uh, I still think I have like a long career ahead of me, a lot of ideas, but I just, rec I, re I do recognize that like, you know, in 10 or 15 years, like I'm not going to be sending as hard as I'm sending out. I mean, maybe I will be, we don't know. Who knows? Um, <laughs> So I don't know. I think I'm right in the middle. Yeah. What you're saying is this was this was not the last we're going to hear of you. No, that's for sure. That was outside contributor Stephanie Joyce speaking with climber Emily Harrington about her recent single day free climb of El Capitan. Stephanie produced this episode, which was edited by me, Michael Roberts. Our music is by Robbie Carver. This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Vermont, a state that is open for the very best in winter adventures, but you do need to take some extra steps before traveling. Learn more about how to plan the getaway you need this season at vermontvacation.com. And that, folks, is the last episode of 2020. We'll be back next year. One of the things that I cannot stop thinking about is, like, how do you use the bathroom while wearing a harness as a woman? Yeah, I feel like I should do a clinic on this. It's not that hard. Um, <laughs> just squat. <laughs> You're not worried about people like, below you? <laughs> well, with peeing, it's, like, kind of just part of the deal. Like, you kind of just get peed on on LCAP. Do you really? Yeah, you do. I got peed on on my day on my in a day ascent um, no while way. I was climbing. Yeah, it just happens. So you just end up like accepting that you're going to get peed on. Wow. <laughs> the unglamorous side. <laughs>